okay, we're going to do something different today. I, I kind of, we did, we did it last service. It was difficult for me. I have, uh, my attention span is very short. And so I kept messing up because I kept being distracted, but I'm going to try to do it this time without mistake. So what we're going to do is we're going to rise. You can, you can say your Bibles to this side. We're going to, we're going to rise together and we're going to read this passage together. And so we want to stand and I'm going to start us and I'm going to, I'm going to just focus on the words and not be distracted by all your voices. And so let's begin for just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of the dis their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy for God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Father, we do thank you for this word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us now as we navigate our way through it. May you speak to us in Christ's good name, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. All right, that's hard. I don't know how people do that. On a... We'll do it again in a couple of years. <laughs> uh, it's hard. You guys are distracting, you know. Okay, so today we, we reach the end of chapters 9 through 11. It's sort of the climax of these three chapters. Um, the last three chapters have been very difficult, uh, studying subjects dealing with Israel and the Gentiles and God's previous promises. And are they, are they still intact? Uh, Paul's covered a lot of items in this difficult, lofty, challenging portion of Scripture. Uh, as we turn the corner today and going forward, it's going to be a lot of fun. This is sort of the meddling section. This is where uh, very practical, easy, uh, tangible things to apply to our lives come from this point forward. Uh, but in this section, it's the last of portion that ties together these three chapters. Uh, Charles Swindoll talks about these three chapters as if they're sort of the Mount Everest of Scripture. He, he talks about the heights that we attain when you climb Mount Everest, as we all have, right? You know, just that last time when you hiked Mount Everest, it takes a couple of days. You have to stop at base camps along the way. And in that, he titled each chapter sort of, he, he referred to chapter nine as, as the, the base camp of, or what does he say here? Camp sovereignty, dealing with God's control, his authority and ability to, to dictate things because he has the freedom to do so because he is God. Uh, chapter 10, he labeled as camp responsibility, that each individual has this responsibility before God uh, to respond to that which God has revealed to us. And finally, in chapter 11, he, I like this one, he refers to it as camp humility, that all of us have to be humbled and sort of acknowledge his plan as he's doing stuff. We're finally in these last six verses, it says, as if we get to the peak of Mount Everest, uh, the, the finale of this section, and we look over at the view, and we see the majesty 
and the magnitude, the awesomeness of God in, in these verses. The first two verses, or maybe it's three verses, uh, we see that there are two words that are used four times each. As I read through this, uh, keep your ears uh, attuned to the word disobedient or disobedience. Uh, the other word that you'll see that comes up four times is mercy. And so verse 30 begins with, For as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient because of the mercy shown to you. They also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. And in those two words, it's almost like it summarizes the last three chapters. The first is disobedience. If you examine this word, you'll see that it means um, a condition of being unpersuadable, stubborn, obstinate, that you're resisting that which God has revealed to you, that which he's shown you through the word. In this chapter, we see that Israel was stubborn and resistant and disobedient to that which God has said. In their disobedience, it opened up the door for God to say, you know what, I'm going to use a different people. I'm going to reach out to the Gentiles. And through that, God showed mercy to the Gentiles in their disobedience. And then through the response of the Gentiles, now the jealousy burns within Israel. And we're going to see that God through this will one day have mercy on them as well. That he's going to reach out to them and his promises will be fulfilled. It culminates into this verse 32. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he may show mercy to all. And the bottom line is that all humanity, every single human from Adam to Eve to today has been disobedient to God. That we've rebelled against God. It's in our nature. We are sinful, not just because we sin, but because we're born into sin. And then we see mercy four times. And so much of the last three chapters, we we start looking from the human perspective. But really, they're about God and his character and his nature. And I love this picture of his being merciful or being uh, filled with mercy towards us. Uh, Christians often will define mercy as uh, God withholding something that we deserve. Like a child that deserves a spanking. Instead of giving them the spanking, you withhold the spanking and you don't do anything to them. That would be merciful. I don't know that it would be wise, but it would be merciful. There's some truth to this. But this week I kept going, what is mercy? How is this word used? What does it mean? I feel like we're missing something when we just say mercy is God withholding something that we deserve. And... One definition of this word was this. It said a a term filled with emotion, referring to God's inclination to relieve our misery. So we really start seeing the picture of God and his compassion and his love as he looks out at his creation and the misery that his creation is in. He reaches out and is merciful to them and he withholds the wrath that is due them. And what is the misery that you're in? Maybe you're saying, well, I'm not really that miserable. Or maybe you're saying, oh, amen, brother, preach it. I am so miserable. The, the, the misery that we find ourselves is sin. That we're in this world that, 
that is just contaminated with sin, with death. I mean, I make the joke about our backs. My back's like hurts all the time. Been the chiropractor way too much this month at $40 a pop. It's been rough. I'm cheap, but that's, you know, but my, my back is like killing me. Like, well, let's put these kids there. They're not far enough along in the second law of thermodynamics where everything's moving from order to disorder where their backs start hurting. So let's put them to work now. Isaac, 50 holes is he's my man. So, so he can do it now. He's all full of flair. 50 holes, no problem. Amen, brother. Keep it up. But our bodies are breaking down. We ultimately face death, which is sin. And God looks out and he has compassion on creation, which has been destroyed and ravaged by sin. This last verse here. The Bible uses two words we're never allowed to use as kids. Shut up. I was never allowed to use that word. If I, I mean, if I used it, there'd be some repercussions. And certainly if I hear any kids around here telling somebody to shut up, it's like, ooh, come here. Let's talk. Let's talk about this. But God says that their disobedience, that he might, that he might shut up all in disobedience. That, that creation is just being silenced. If you'll turn with me back to Habakkuk, if you can find this little book in the Old Testament, it's towards the end of the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite books. By the time you find it, I'm going to ask you to turn back to Romans. So thank you for going through this. Habakkuk is this prophet. It's not a prophetical book where the prophet is declaring a message from God to the world. It's a prophet's diary where he's crying out to God. How long do I have to deal with this? And it's his communication with God. And God finally says, you know what? I'm going to speak one day and I'm going to do something. And in verse chapter 20, chapter two, verse 20, we read this. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And God responds like the wrath of God is coming. The calm before the storm. And as he appears, he just expects silence from his creation. It reminds me of the days as a SEAL instructor. I don't get to use this line that often, but it was great. As a SEAL instructor, you'd be in the office, all your cronies would be there, and you'd get a, stu- a couple students that would come in, and they'd start talking, they'd have their input. I almost never used the line, but I always giggled when I heard it. There'd always be the instructor that'd look at the kids and they'd say, hey, you be quiet, the adults are talking over here. Kind of like, just humble yourself. Hey, why don't you just go do some push-ups? Actually, go hit the surf and then come back and do some push-ups. It's like, ooh, that's hilarious from the perspective of the instructor, not so much from the student. But you get this picture in Habakkuk that as the world, as creation has rebelled against him, that a day is coming when a reckoning is going to happen. And as God appears, as he's about to speak, there's just silence. Everybody's mouth is sealed because God is holy. God is big. He is mighty. And going back to Romans... This is what I see for God has shut up all in disobedience. Now, if I was to write the rest of this verse in my heart, I'm uh, my inclination is not to be merciful. I think God has made me way more of a merciful person the longer that I've been walking with him. But my inclination is wrath. I, I go through life and I want breaks and, and I can see people that made the same mistakes or even less mistakes that I made at that same station in life. 
I say, let's break out the big guns. Let's just decimate them. They deserve wrath. Justice. And that's what I'd expect from God. But look what God says. He's shut up all in disobedience. That he may show mercy to all. And that's the God that we love and walk with. This merciful, compassionate, kind God wants to show mercy to all. Amen. So then as we continue, Paul has his eyes on the Lord. He's reflected on all that he said about God's character over these last three chapters. And if there was a high point at the end of Romans chapter 8, which says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This beautiful passage, this crescendo of looking at salvation, looking at our relationship with God from our perspective. At this ending point, he's going to look at God. There, there's no real promise that I see given to us. It's just he wants us to get a good glimpse at who God is. And the first phrase here, the first couple sentences in verse 33, it's two sentences looking at the character of God. It begins with, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. When he looks at God, his wisdom, his knowledge. Some have said this is the, the sum total of all that there is to think. When he looks at God's knowledge, his understanding, his wisdom, he says the riches of the depth. It's, it's, we, can't even, we can't even begin to understand what he knows. He knows everything. There's nothing that God doesn't know. There's nothing that God doesn't comprehend. From the whole of creation to the most uh, private thing in your life. He knows everything. Then he says how unsearchable. This word was a word that, that a hunter would use to track an animal. So if an animal was searchable, he'd be able to, to, to track the tracks of the animal so that he could hunt down the animal. But in dealing with searching for God, he says he's unsearchable. He's, untra- he's untraceable. Anything I know about God, it's because God has allowed me to see it. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Paul recognizes that words are not able to communicate this truth about God. The first part, the first sentence deals with God's knowledge, his his comprehension, his his knowledge over all. Anything there is to think about anything he has full capacity of it. And then dealing with this knowledge, how does God move or respond to this knowledge? Is the second part. His judgments, his ways, how he acts, how he behaves. Knowledge, wisdom, thinking leads to action. And considering how God acts, he says, you know what? It's unsearchable. He's, I, I, he's unfathomable. I He's he's beyond us. You see this picture of God getting really, really big, not getting really big, but but Paul's perception of how great and grand God is. is just reducing Paul to this tiny little I don't even know what the smallest thing is, tiny little speck. 
I'm nothing. I'm nothing smaller than a molecule. <laughs> Got to correct Larry at all times. And so as he, as he ponders the majesty, the awesomeness of God, he quotes two Old Testament passages. The, the first place he, he's going to go to is Isaiah. And in Isaiah, he says, he quotes from Isaiah, who said, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? If you turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 40, we'll go to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, to look at this passage in context. So Isaiah 40, it's interesting. Isaiah 40 is a, is a, is a turning point in the book of Isaiah. The first 40 chapters, Isaiah has had this revelation from God. He's proclaiming judgment is coming to the southern kingdom of Israel. When we get to chapters 40 to the end, we see that God's plan of redemption and restoration and promises and hope begin to emerge. So it's interesting that Paul begins to quote from this section. And in verse 12 of chapter 40 of Isaiah, he says, Isaiah says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Have you guys considered how much water is on our planet, the oceans? I've been on the surface of a lot of it, but the surface is only the surface. There's great depth. And and he said, who's measured the waters? And he he, he says it's just in the hollow of his hand. It's like us scooping into the bathtub and pulling up a little bit of water for God. That's how all of the oceans in the world are to him. They're nothing. They're tiny. Then he goes on to say, and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and hills in a, in a pair of scales. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or who is or as his counselor has informed him with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding a show that ann and i we've been like I've, the last few weeks i've really started to liking it undercover boss you guys seen that show it's great i love it you, but before they go where this boss from the ceo from a huge corporation before he goes undercover they have to pull together his whole board and he says hey guys i have this plan i'm thinking about doing this this is what i want to accomplish and this is how it's going about and then he goes undercover for a week the point I want to talk about is that I don't care what the corporation is or what, what it is, whoever's on top, there's almost always like a board of people at some level to give wisdom and counsel. And so Isaiah is asking the question, you know, God created the world when he put the oceans there and he put all the dust and he, you know, he cut out space and placed it there. Who, who was his board of directors? Who counseled him to give him wisdom and understanding to, to do all of this stuff. And, and it's sort of tongue in cheek. Because nobody. No human brings anything to the table with God. God is self-sufficient. He's outside of creation. He's all knowing. He's all thinking. He could do whatever he wants. He says behold the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon. Now, we, we don't have much experience in Lebanon. Today, it's more desert today. And, but there was a day when Lebanon was filled with the greatest forest. But through wars and stuff, they were all cut down. 
And so he's he's painting a picture. Think of the Sierra Nevadas or, or the place with the biggest trees and pine trees that are dense all around. He says, even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for burnt offering. He's saying, when we bow down and worship God and God requires an offering, you take all of the trees of the world and you make the biggest fire with the biggest animals. It's not enough because our God is so big that his worship requires more. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. That's a verse for world politics. I don't, I don't know. That. Sorry, that's just me laughing. I'll leave that in my head. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with them? Back to Romans. Isaiah is basically saying God is incomparable to anything. He's unmatched. And Paul, as he goes through this, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Nobody has become his counselor. Then he quotes from Job or who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. Think about this, going back to the creation of the world. God wants to create everything. You know, if you want to buy a house, if you want to buy or build a, you know, a new office space or a corporation or anything, most of us need help. Most of us have to go get a loan to say, hey, can you help? I have this great idea. I want to do this. Can you finance me? He's saying, when God created everything, who is the guy that like financed him? Who? Would somebody work a sweet deal with low interest rates so that God could afford the payments to, to provide all of this stuff? This is, the Bible's hilarious. God needed nobody to finance him. He needed nobody to help him. Nobody brought God anything to help him provide and create all that he has. We bring nothing to the table with God. Who has known the mind of the Lord or become his counselor, who has first given to him, that it might be paid back to him again. Wow. That's big stuff. There, there's a psalm that I started to think of as I was studying about this. And I'm going to, maybe Justin can come pop off the lights. We're going to do a little slideshow here. We're doing stuff different. I figure I could turn off the lights, cool it down for a little bit. Okay, so here's this verse, Psalm 8.3. And I imagine David, little shepherd boy out in the field in Israel with his sheep at night, staring up at the stars and just sort of getting lost in his thought. And he writes, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. By the naked eye, I believe that we can see about 3000 stars. If you just go out at night, assuming you're not in a city someplace where there's no ambient light around and just darkness and a clear sky, you can see about 3,000 stars. And I imagine young David just out there looking at creation and letting his mind sort of wander to the edge of eternity. I don't know if you guys have ever done this. Uh, growing up, I wrestled with this. I, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, and I, I, I would have these moments looking out, at the stars or, or something like a mountain, somewhere out in creation where I was alone. And the magnitude of it all would just get to me. 
And, and I would allow my brain to sort of wander into affinity. I'd start thinking, well, I know tomorrow's my birthday. And uh, don't, don't say anything. I hate, I'm not a big birthday guy. But it's like, well, I know so many years ago, tomorrow is when I like entered into this world. I remember nothing of it. I've seen pictures. But then my mind starts going, well, well, what existed before I was born? There's all kind of history. I can read history books. I know that stuff existed and happened before I was born. But I wasn't there. But where was I? What was, what was, was I thinking anything? Do I just not remember it? And then it's like, oh, I, I can't imagine a world without me. Amen? Aren't we all there? Like, I mean, it's, I think it's the world, I am everything to this world to me. Because without me, there's nothing. And then I go, wait a minute. If I go the other direction and I go, pretty much everybody dies. Pretty much, we're like at 100%. There's like, I mean, like two or three examples in the world where the Bible says that they were taken straight up into heaven. Jesus came back from the death. But for the most of us, you know, I'm not thinking I'm going to get that lucky. Death is coming. And I've read it that you sort of tip a point in your life, and I think I'm pretty much there, where when you look forward in life, it's not about, hey, I'm going to go conquer the world. It's more like, oh, man, I got less time in front of me than I have behind me. And how, man, I'm just thankful I have this day. Whew, maybe I'll get tomorrow. Oh, when's that conveyor belt going to drop off and then I die? And then when I die, what then? This is all me laying out under the stars. You know, I'd gone that way. I don't remember anything. And then I go, well, what happens when I die? My candle just gets snuffed and it's just like nothing. Like I don't remember it. Oh, but there has to be more. But I start thinking, and especially before I was a Christian, before I had any understanding of what the Bible said about anything, I was taught by evolutionists. I was taught that, 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 I, that I was an accident. My, my, in fact, my, my dad said I was an accident. Everything about me was an accident. I was just a series of things colliding, and then here I am, and when it ends, it ends. Oh, but it doesn't sit right. And I've done a lot of funerals for believers and non-believers. And I can assure you that every funeral, I don't care what your, what, what your theological background is or lack thereof, there's something about death that just cuts us. It scares us. It doesn't sit right. We can't compute. And Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that God has placed eternity in our hearts. You see, we were never created to die. Sin entered the world and death came as a result. But at those moments when I start wandering before I was a believer, it's just like, what is out there? What happens? Or is this just it? But almost always I get to the end there and I get like scared. And it's like, I got to like, Tiptoe out of this thought process. Let's think about the Padres or think about the Charger. Or let's think about something other than these deep things that I can't even begin to, to find the answer to. And here I think David says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, as he looks out, we have so much more technology than David did. Let's look at this next slide. This is a lovely seat. This was my seat for many hours a few years ago. I think this is a picture of when I went to Israel. This was my, this was my, this was my seat from Atlanta to Tel Aviv. That one seat was mine. 
I think eventually the other guy moved. And so then I had two seats and I sucked it up for 12 hours, a very long flight. Now, if we could look at the map of the world, this is the world as we know it, right? We're this tiny little speck. If you go to Europe or you basically go to the other side of the world, anywhere in this region, I think that's pretty much the line. If, if, the, if you're going anywhere over here, you're going to fly this way. 12-hour flight at like 30,000 feet going about 800 miles an hour, 12 hours. It's 11.27 right now. At 11.27 tonight, think to yourself, I just landed. That seems like that's a huge piece of real estate. And that's only halfway. I've done it a bunch of times that way. I've gone that way over here. When you're up in the air and you look out a crate, you're like, this place is huge. I guarantee you guys, if I said, hey, we're going to take a time out. All of us, let's line it up. We're going to walk down to the corner of Colgrade and Valley Center Road and come back. You guys would all be complaining. It's too far. I'm not going to go that far. It's hot. I think <laughs> we'll get sodas, and then we'll, we'll come back. And that's like a mile. And, and we look at this creation. If, you, if we go outside and look at the horizon, it seems huge to us. If you hop on a flight and go around the world, the world seems huge, gigantic. I keep saying huge because I don't think there's a ginormous maybe. Well, go to the next slide. So here we have the Earth. We have Venus, which is smaller than the Earth. I was told during the last service. I'm not sure if this picture is to scale, but I'm pretty sure it is. Then you have Mars, then you have Mercury, then you have poor Pluto, which was downgraded from a planet to a dwarf planet, I learned in between services. So the Earth here, it's still looking pretty big. But if you look at these other ones, those are pretty huge. They're big. Because remember, we just looked at flying from this little bit or walking around here. Gigantic. Now let's go to the next slide. So now we have Jupiter, pretty big. We have Saturn, pretty big. We have Uranus. We have Neptune. And here, this little one is the Earth. I have no idea how many Earths it would take to fill Jupiter. A whole lot. Suddenly now, this massive, gigantic Earth that we live on is starting to not look so big compared to these other planets that we can see through telescopes and stuff. Now go to the next slide. Okay, now the Earth got really, really small. It's that little dot right there. Pluto, I don't think you can see. We have Jupiter here, which looked huge. And then we have our suntan source right here. The sun. That's pretty big, isn't it? The sun. We can see that with our eye. It doesn't look that big when we look at it. It just looks like a little dot in the sky. If you have your sunglasses on or if you have welding goggles and you look up at it, it just looks like a little tennis ball up there in the sky, not so big. But apparently to this, pretty huge. Now let's go to the next slide. Now this is not the sun. The the sun is right over here. Jupiter is about one pixel and you can't see the earth anymore. Now we have Looks like Siri, but it's Cyrus. We have Pollux, Arcturus, huge, big. How this earth we live on seems so huge three slides ago, didn't it? Now go to the next slide. Okay, now Archicus, or whatever that one was, is right here, that tiny little thing. 
We have all of these other, these must be stars at this point. I'm not, I'm not big into the stars. But it gets overwhelming. Just looking up there. And if your mind goes, if you start thinking through you in comparison, there's some big, big question marks that start surfacing in the, in the, the core of who I am. Before I knew Christ, you know, I was, I was told by those in education that I evolved out of nothing, that there was a series of like explosions and then through these explosions and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of time, we need to understand that the, 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 the non-believing scientists, their God is time. They would never admit it, but time fills in all of the gaps for all of the places that they can't. But then when I die, it just sort of cuts out. But I'm, I'm looking around me just with evidence. I look at this creation and, and, and people that are way smarter than me telling me that if like the earth is just like a half degree off either way, then life on this earth can't be sustained. If, if the percentage of oxygen in the atmosphere, there's all of these things that are, that are way too big of a coincidence that, that, that life requires. I've blown up all kinds of stuff, and that's not being sarcastic. I mean, like C4, I've blown up big stuff. I've never blown up anything and seen order come out of it. Not even remotely. It decimates stuff. And, and so looking at just around me, it overwhelms me. But now as a Christian, suddenly the God of the universe did this. Turn to the next slide, please. And we go back to King David there. And he says, when I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. What is man that you would care for him? When we look at the creation that we can see, we realize that we really are like, we don't even show up as a pixel. And that's only a a sliver of it. Who, Who are we that God would consider us? You can turn the lights back on, please, Justin. And I think that this is where. Paul is going in this passage. Oh, the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Nobody. There's one verse that we should all struggle over. And if you have a problem with this verse, you're going to have a problem with the whole. If you'll turn with me to the very first page of the Bible at Genesis 1. This is the most difficult passage in the whole Bible. This is our anchoring point. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we go back to the source The Bible's claim on history is that in the beginning, God just created everything. He spoke it into existence. 
I've always been a difficult person. You can ask anybody that I went to seminary with. Like, teachers hate me. I mean, I, that's my feeling. I, I literally go to, when I, when I was in the doctoral program and I was going out to the seminars, I would fly the whole way to Kansas City just thinking to myself, just shut your mouth. Just shut your mouth. Don't say anything. Don't think anything. Just be quiet. You can do it. And then I get there and I'm like the most combative person because I'm kicking against everything. I said, how are you guys thinking? Aren't you thinking? I go, oh, I did it again. I've got the worst reputation. And I was worse before I was a believer. (laughs) And I remember like, like, evolutionists and, and they say that this big mystical ball of whatever that just happened and, and the, the way it happened is billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of years and you ask the question but where did that stuff come from we don't know if they're honest with you, like that there's no this stuff had to come from somewhere nobody has an, an answer for where that stuff came from But the Bible said at the beginning that God created the heavens of the earth. He spoke it into existence. That's how powerful he is. Out of nothing, he can create stuff. Going back to Romans, as Paul looks at him. And I picture Paul weeping on his face, humble before the Lord And he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. I believe it's in Colossians 126, where we're told that Jesus created all things and holds all things together. The fact that you're here today, the fact that you have life and breath, it's because God has given you this day. If God didn't want you here today, he could take you away. Notice the three words, from, through, and to. From him that God is the source of all things. Through him that he sustains all things. And to him that all things were created to bring him glory. They're for him. And he says, to him be the glory forever. I don't know that I get. That that he have all the glory. There's nothing that we have that is worthy of glory. If there's anything that you've done that's of significance it's because god has gifted you in a certain way and blessed you in order to make this happen during the reformation a bunch of doctrine sort of surfaced doctrine in large part is response to an air of theological teaching as you look through history those in, in leadership or those of the church or religion will often take a left turn. And then people compare the left turn to what the Bible has revealed. And they start kicking back against whatever it is. And you'll come to the word of God and you say, you know what, you're saying this. But the Bible says this. And if the Bible says this, this is truth. And so that cuts against that. And so now a doctrine is formed. And during the Reformation, there were five solas. These five doctrinal truths surfaced from what the, the, the Catholic Church was teaching and doing that cut against the word of God. 
And I'm going to read them wrong because they're in Latin. I, I'm more familiar with Spanish and I'm focusing on Spanish. So I don't want to, I don't want to make my Spanish any less pure than it already is. So the first one is sola scriptura. That out of the Reformation, that one of the things that people gave their lives for, the scripture alone has authority. Not what I say, not what the Pope says. I love what Alistair Begg says. He says, the best of men are men at best. We're men. The only thing that has any authority is the scripture. The second thing that they came up with, solus Christus, that, that Christ alone made the way that we could have a relationship with God. And we, we kick, but why? Well, I wasn't there when God formed the world. I wasn't there to give him advice. He didn't come to me to figure out how to bring salvation and relationship to that which he created. So I'm left with the thank you, Lord, that Christ came, that I may have relationship with him. The third thing is solo gratia or gratia. I don't know. It's grace alone. It's not by works. She's in the soul of fide, faith alone. Our salvation with God is based on the work that Christ did. It's given to us by his grace, not by our works, simply because we responded in faith to what he's done. And the final thing was solio de gloria, which is the verse to him be the glory forever. And there's no glory given to anything other than to God, not to church, not to the building, not to the pope. To God alone deserves the glory from man. And when we see God in this magnitude, it changes everything how we live life. Because God is bigger than whatever you're going through. I haven't had the call yet, but man, I, I've got buddies dying left and right. I have all kind of people in the SEAL teams that have died of brain cancer. And Ann and I are kind of joking. We're like, yeah, we're just waiting for the day I go to the doctor one day and I get the call, hey, you need to come down to the office. We never want the doctor to call us. As a pastor, I've learned, you don't want the doctor saying, you need to come back to my office. No, dude, just tell me over the phone. I'm not waiting till next Tuesday. Tell me over the phone. I won't sue you. No, just let me have it. No, come down to my office. I haven't had the call, but I'm anticipating that one day I'll get the call that there's cancer. That's just because we're, that's like, it seems like that's what everybody gets these days. It's just, it's just, we're trying to fight against it. But, but the issue is we live in this world where sin is contaminated. Our, my, my body's breaking down. Eventually, something's going to happen where I get the word that your days are numbered. And I can't imagine facing that without God. But then I look at people I know, uh, my one friend that, that was, when I came to restart this church, he was at a, a church in Mira Mesa, a strategic guy, his wife just died of cancer. This guy had a lot of money. A lot of money. I, I forget what happened. He was a computer programmer guy. Turned out that Microsoft used his code without permission. And so Microsoft settled with him. I don't know how much they settled for. But all I know is this guy said that, it, he, that he always wished he could tie the million dollars. And he said, because of the settlement, I was able to do that. I was like, oh, brother, don't forget me. <laughs> but all of his money... His wife passed away, but this guy and his wife loved the Lord. And, and through Facebook, watching this process of his wife dying, who she passed away like a month ago, it's the most beautiful thing that he would include us in with this talking about 
oh, this time I had, I'm just thankful to God for this time that I had with her. I know that, that, that she's with him now. And just seeing the grace, because his life circumstances aren't bigger than God. He understands whatever the purpose. He might not understand why he's going through, but he does understand that God is in control over the whole thing. So your car breaks down, you're having trouble at work, finances are tight, whatever it is. And I preach it to myself because I've told you guys many times, I have the gift of worry. I'm great at it. I can worry about the most insignificant things. I can lose sleep. But when you start putting things in perspective, God is greater than anything that you're going through. We can trust him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And I just want to end. No, wait. All things. To him be the glory forever. And look how Paul ends. Amen. Amen. That's pretty much the ending. We just need to understand what amen means. What does amen mean? So be it. That's what they said during last service. I didn't find it in my study, but I guess it means so be it. This is... This is a definition of this word that I found, which so be it fits. A, a strong affirmation of what is declared. Truly, indeed, it is true that fill in the blank. What's Paul saying amen to? If we go over chapters 9, 10, and 11, three words sort of surface about God. I don't think Israel's the subject of, of these chapters. I don't think Gentiles are the subject. I think God and his character is what is at ultimate stake in these three chapters. And what I think Paul is saying, the amen to, is that God is unsearchable, he's unfathomable, and he's unmatched. Amen. That's what he says amen to. And Father, we do thank you and praise you that you are mighty. Father, we come to you with all sorts of issues. We have a lot of baggage. We have a lot of hurt. We have a lot of pain in our lives, Lord. And Father, we come to you in different places. And Lord, I pray for those that maybe haven't reached the place of where they've received you as Savior, that they've trusted in you, Lord, that they would Become a child of God through Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bridge the gap for people here today, Lord. For those of us who have trusted in you, Lord, we confess our worry, our lack of faith, our trust in ourselves and our own ability. Father, I pray that you would help us to to get a glimmer of, of your majesty, of your awesomeness. Lord, help us to live this life knowing that we walk with a God who is great and mighty, that you care about our every need. We thank you, Lord, that you love us. We ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.